0: Thank you. Good and, afternoon, everyone. And actually, it, it's, a, it's a, a very opportune moment for, for, for talking about investigative journalism, which I would, I would, I would defend my slight adjustment of subject by saying it, it's an important branch of quality journalism, and for a variety of reasons, I think it is, it is uh, under threat. But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really apposite and interesting moment to be talking about it. Um, uh, tomorrow, um, uh, 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 there's going to be the third of the seminars held by uh, uh, Justice Leveson as part of his inquiry, uh, where journalists and editors will be discussing uh, uh, the future of self-regulation or of regulation of the press. Um, uh, uh, later this week, I, uh, in common with many other editors, will be I'll be signing my witness statement into the Leveson Inquiry. This is a a statement which has got the force of of law uh, behind it, um, uh, answering a whole set of questions that have been set by the Inquiry. Next week, Chris Mayer is going to be here talking about press regulation. And in a way, this is a bit of, quite apart from uh, the importance of journalism, this is a moment where in a sense, the beginnings of the next bit of public policy formulation about the press in this country has been set. And as you hear, I think the stakes are pretty high. Um, But ironically, I mean, it's been quite a summer, as people will know with the various revelations and kind of hijinks and the select committee and all the rest of it. But this summer um, was also the summer where the BBC uh, chose to uh, to, uh, launch a drama about the investigative journalism of of 50 to 60 years ago. This is a program called The Hour. Um, It was set in uh, the BBC's Lime Grove Studios in 1956, uh, and the backdrop was the uh, uh, unfolding and gathering crisis uh, uh, of Suez. Um, And The Hour uh, contains, contains all sorts of things, but it certainly contains quite a few of the... Uh, 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 features of our present uh, local difficulty with investigative journalism, certainly conspiracy, certainly spin doctors, uh, uh, the threat of censorship and a kind of mood of betrayal, personal and <coughs> collective betrayal in the air. But the reason, I, unashamedly, I'm vaguely responsible for it, but I unashamedly as a viewer love lovely hour is because the hour is a kind of love letter to investigative journalism and its heroes, uh, Freddie and Bell, the two heroes, Young producer and a young journalist at the BBC, what they believe in is a journalism which is not as the BBC was then, uh, uh, a journalism based on uh, uh, reporting debutants' balls and very, very obsequious interviews with politicians weeks after the actual political events they were covering, but a journalism about the things that matter and a journalism with the courage to actually reveal. Uh, uh, things and hold institutions and politicians to account. Um, now, it's incredibly easy to watch that program and and dismiss that idea of journalism as a kind of hopelessly naive uh, uh, view of the world. Um, uh, I'm, I've been an investigative journalist myself, and, and most people who have know that real investigations tend to be rather less glamorous uh, than either the hour, or for that matter, all the president's men. Um, quite often, they uh, end very frustratingly, not having discovered anything, or almost worse, leaving the journalists involved with suspicions for a sense that there's something there to report, but with inadequate evidence with which to actually publish anything. But what's interesting about the hour is it, the way it captures the conviction um, and in an almost freaky way, it, it caught the kind of spirit, which I still found. When I walked into the real Lime Grove Studios, which was knocked down um, uh, 25 years ago. But I walked into Lime Grove Studios as, a, as a, a, a research assistant trainee um, fresh from Oxford in 1979. And the, the color of the paint on the walls was the same as this drama this summer. And that sense of conviction about, about journalism and the excitement of investigative journalism was still absolutely part of, part of the, the woodwork. Um, the 1980s was an amazing period for controversial investigations. Like many people here, younger people, they won't, won't have known these, but Manny's Militant Tendency, Death on the Rock, Zircon. Many of these were made in, in, in the Lime Grove, which still had, like our drama, a kind of undertow of uh, the Cold War, of MI5 vetting and very nervous senior managers, the you know, director generals and governors of the BBC, terrified about what the investigative journalists would do. And the investigative journalist was a, was a hero. And, and I have to say, I, I still think of the investigative journalists as, as heroes. I, I've worked with, with um, uh, some of the best journalists I think the BBC in Britain has produced in recent years, John Ware, Peter Taylor, Tom Mangold, among them. And I think they're all examples of people who, just like our, our fictional hero, uh, Freddie and Bell, genuinely are motivated by a thoughtful, painstaking determination to get to the truth. And they're people for whom this much-used phrase, the public interest, is not some infinitely elastic concept which you can justify, you can stretch to justify any intrusion or journalistic journalistic malpractice, for them it means something precise, It it means the benefit, the civic benefit, not just in terms of the public's right to know, but also, at least in principle, in terms of better policies and laws, better conduct by public and commercial bodies that may be derived by exposing the kinds of serious wrongdoing, deception, hypocrisy, unjustified secrecy that go beyond the private to have real and significant public ramifications. This is not about celebrity exclusives. Uh, it's not about invasions of privacy where there aren't public issues at stake, but disinterested investigations into matters of substance. That's the kind of investigative journalism I believe in, and which certainly I've tried to support in every job I've done, as the well have Panorama, uh, 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 as editor of the 9 o'clock news and also my current job as editor-in-chief of the BBC. But what i want to say this afternoon is that investigative journalism, both broadcast and print, faces, I think, very significant threats today, Um, greater threats today in 2011 than it did either in the 1950s or in the 1980s when I started in this business. Before the phone hacking scandal, conventional wisdom said that traditional investigative journalism faced two threats. First, economic, and the second related to the impact of the internet and the new forms of disclosure and journalism that the internet enabled. Now, the the economic threat is is a familiar one. I won't dwell on it for too long. And it is that in common with many other forms of quality journalism, the deteriorating business model for newspapers, in the developed world at least, may not be able to support the pretty considerable cost of mounting protracted investigations. The commercial fundamentals haven't changed quite so much in the broadcast arena, but here too I think the pessimists would point to the pressure on commissioners and on schedulers to focus on the genre which bring in the largest number of viewers and commercial impacts and that too potentially undermines investment in quality journalism and in particular, investigative journalism. So That's that's the case that's made. I want to say that although I think that case has got some weight, I think you you can also see some trends in the opposite direction. In the UK, quite a few newspapers, Sunday Times, The Independent, as well as The Guardian, are papers which clearly regard investigative journalism not just as vital in itself, but also as a competitively valuable point of differentiation. Indeed, I point to The Daily Telegraph as a newspaper which has launched What is essentially a new tradition of major investigations in recent years including their revelations about uk parliamentarians abuse of their expenses one of the journalistic coups of the last few years and on british tv while it's true that the demise of world in action has meant fewer investigations on itv i think it's true that both the bbc and channel 4 continue to bring investigations regularly to their viewers the bbc program panorama in particular has had a striking series of investigative successes in recent years. And indeed, last week we announced that we're going to increase the amount of money available to Panorama for investigations. So, although commercial pressures are undoubtedly making it hard of some editors, especially those responsible for local and regional newspapers, to support as much investigative journalism as they'd like, it's not obvious that economics alone will put pay to it. So what about threat number two, which is that in the age of do it yourself internet distributive revelation, you simply won't need expensive professional investigative journalists anymore. WikiLeaks, Matt Drudge, Guido Fawkes, and a thousand others may deliver their scoops and insights with less precision and restraint than their traditional counterparts. But don't they deliver them all the same, and often more quickly, and with less mediation and qualification than conventional journalistic practice would allow? It's interesting, though, that when Julian Assange and Wikileaks um, uh, had their enormous treasure trove of, of data, that they should have turned to an inter- international group of newspapers, The New York Times, The Guardian, El País, Spiegel, Le Monde, to help with the journalistic ta- tasks of redaction and contextualization. The internet is a perfect letterbox for whistleblowers and disclosures uh, of every kind, But without the validation of professional editors and the credibility of established and respected media brands, the problems of provenance and believability loom large. Indeed, I'd argue that the explosion of digital media has, if anything, strengthened the argument for a cadre of professionally trained journalists to sift and make sense of it. How else can the public satisfy themselves that what they're reading or looking at is an important fact and not unsubstantiated gossip, or a random element in someone's conspiracy theory. But what the phone hacking threat, the the phone hacking scandal has thrown up in the UK at least, is a third, and I think in some ways, much more serious threat, which is of what you could call an enemy within, a collapse of probity and restraint by journalists and editors themselves, which risks making a mockery of the idea of the public interest and and of robbing investigative journalism of its legitimacy and credibility. Legitimate investigative journalism strays into intrusion only when topics of genuine public importance are at stake, and even then it takes care that the intrusion is proportionate to the matter in hand. There are some things which should always be out of the question. Serious criminality of any kind. Fishing expeditions, in other words, speculative acts of intrusion or entrapment, where the journalists do not have strong prima facie evidence of serious wrongdoing. Nor should journalists ever use techniques which they could not justify openly and clearly in public. All of these rules seem to have been broken in the case of the news of the world. Given the industrial scale of the abuse and the apparent failure of editors and managers over years to confront it, it's hardly surprising that many people in the UK are asking themselves whether these practices are widespread across the whole of British journalism. The Leveson Inquiry, will seek to find an answer to that question. At the BBC, we've taken a close look at the period which Levison is scrutinising back to the beginning of 2005. And despite the many thousands of hours of output and millions of budget lines in scope, our review (coughs) hasn't identified a single instance of phone hacking or the bribery of police officers or any of the malpractices which are alleged to have happened at the News of the World. And indeed, the character of broadcast investigative journalism is somewhat different from its counterpart in print. In TV, secret filming techniques are always done, and other forms of uh, 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 secret recording, are always done with a view to broadcasting. We always start off with the intention not just of revealing the story to the public, but of showing the techniques we use to uncover it. And there are stringent controls on when and how such techniques can be used. The BBC requires the decision to involve senior editors, and it depends on the team having already obtained substantial evidence of wrongdoing. The BBC, we only do investigations with a clear public interest rationale. But even after that rationale has been established, there is still a debate about whether the methods the journalists propose to use are reasonable and proportionate. I'll give you an example. A recent edition of Panorama revealed an appalling level of abuse of vulnerable young adults in a British care home. It was a shocking program, shocking in the level of abuse it uncovered and shocking to watch what was going on. But the program also illustrates two of the issues editors have to consider before they go into this kind of filming. What we did was we, we, we took a young man and uh, 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 got him to uh, 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 join the care home uh, posing as a care worker. He had a camera and was able to film what was happening inside the home. Now, now, to do that clearly exposed both the victims of abuse and also the care home workers to a level of intrusion. They were being filmed and it turned out, it turned out filmed for, for national television without their, without their consent. Before we took that decision, the editor of Panorama, a man called Tom Giles, and our overall head of editorial policy, thought long and hard about the amount of evidence that that abuse was taking place in the home and the level of public interest that was involved in making the intrusion. And in this case, they decided that we should go ahead with the filming. The program was broadcast. Um, What happened was that immediately um, the police moved in made a a significant number of arrests of of some of the workers in the care home. The the young people involved were moved to other care homes. Um, It looks like uh, there was a debate in Parliament. It looks like the law is going to be changed to prevent this kind of abuse happening. Now, to do this, first of all, you have to make sure that that level of intrusion, you, you believe, is justified knowing what you know. Secondly, you also have to confront a second fact, which is that to put someone in this position, to send someone in posing as a, as a, as a care worker is a breaking of employment legislation. People are not meant to, uh, to, 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 to go in and, and work in an institution when their primary motive is, 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 is for some quite different reason. So, It's a technical breach of employment legislation. But again, our editorial decision makers concluded that this we would argue, relatively minor breaking of the rules, was justified in the public interest, given the seriousness of the abuse, and in particular, given the fact that this was a care home which the body, which is supposed to um, ensure appropriate standards, had recently inspected and given a clean bill of health to. In cases like this, where... Uh, We do two things. We go go in and and secretly film. And secondly, we break, in this case, a a, a regulation in employment legislation. Uh, Our experience has been that that, uh, a public interest defense, or if there is no defense in law, a public interest justification generally leads the authorities, the police, the Crown Prosecution Service, and so on, um, deciding that despite the technical breach, they shouldn't go ahead and take action against us. because. They're convinced by the public interest arguments, um, though this isn't always the case, sadly. But there was a few years ago, um, one of our consumer programmes um, was doing an investigation into some so-called trade guilds. This is a, 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 a programme called Brassed Off Britain, um, and the, um, the 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 story they were investigating was the claim that these these guilds would offer anyone an accreditation for some uh, building skill, for example. Which the, the person who got the accreditation could then use to impress prospective clients. But they were giving the accreditation not on the basis of thorough checks or any evidence of any training or skills on the, on the part of the person involved, but simply in return for the registration fee. So, to test the story, this is a consumer team applied for accreditation from a woodworking guild in the name of a guinea pig. Um, Uh, I think the name they put on the form was McGinley Pig Uh, (laughs) and they sent off the application form with £10.99 and of course inevitably by return of the post the accreditation for for Mr Pig uh, arrived back in the post so the programme was transmitted Um, and then a few few days later we get a phone call from the police um, uh, saying they're investing a, a a case of forgery, this is to do with the name being written on the form in the name of pig. Uh, 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 And the police said they were proposing to interview the producer of the program under caution. They didn't ask to interview the guinea pig himself, which is just as well, because the guinea pig was out putting in a kitchen. Um, um, In the end, however, common sense prevailed and the case was not pursued by the police, but I want to keep that example in mind of, of, of the occasion where the, the, the reaction of the authorities is not to support the programme, but to support the, uh, the, the target of the programme. I, I don't believe that any level of public interest can ever justify investigative journalists taking part in, or soliciting others to take part in serious criminal activity. But I do believe that sometimes breaking rules is the only way of substantiating an important story, and that it can be justified. The proportionate and reasonable approach the authorities generally take to cases like this is an important condition for effective investigative journalism to thrive. The investigative journalists I've worked with, both at the BBC and Channel 4, are amongst the best journalists I know. They never forget that investigations are full of potential ethical traps, not least because, just as with the police or judicial investigation, not everyone whom you start of suspecting of wrongdoing will turn out to be guilty. The possibility that you're following the wrong lead should always be in your mind as you consider each step in the investigation, and specifically when you're considering the proposal to use an intrusive technique like secret recording. And to state the obvious, it's both vital and often very difficult to get it right. Investigative journalists do not enjoy the sweeping powers of the police and the courts, and often they begin a story with little more than scraps of information. There's no substitute for checking, rechecking, and subjecting the thesis you're pursuing to constant challenge from colleagues, editors, lawyers. The Guardian's investigation into phone hacking has taken years so far because of the care and the difficulty of the investigation, and it's, indeed it's not, not yet over. <coughs> Responsible investigative journalism doesn't just depend on the right rules and systems of oversight, it also relies on the determination of the journalists to do the right thing. In other words, it relies on journalistic values and culture. On another panorama, when I was editor at this time <coughs> about a series of incidents where the British Army had shot people dead in Northern Ireland, I remember John Ware, the reporter, flying back to Belfast on the day before we put the programme out. And and John went to a field somewhere in rural Ulster to find a man in a caravan who was a key witness in the programme. John had met this man and interviewed him on camera a number of times before, but he wanted to go back to check one more time that what the man was saying was true. As the Leveson inquiry picks through the wreckage of what happened in the news of the world, it's very important that this question of values isn't lost or deemed to be entirely addressable by a new mechanic of regulation and oversight. Now, we had at the BBC our set of quite serious editorial lapses a few years ago. It wasn't in the context of investigative journalism, ranged ranged from some shortcomings in competitions on the air to an appalling lapse of taste on the Russell Brand show. Now, inevitably, part of what we did, if you remember it, part of what we did... (laughs) of course was to put in some checks and balances and kind of new, new ways of, of making sure programs were properly complied. You have to do that. It's not very popular in a creative organization. You have to do that. But what I want to say is the most important thing we tried to do was to, 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 to encourage every single program maker we'd got, which meant thousands of producers and editors across the BBC, to take part in a series of conversations and kind of seminars about our values and about our editorial culture. It's partly about rules, it's also about what you believe in and what your shared conviction is about what you're doing. <clears throat> and that's partly because, when, if we come back to investigative journalism, it's not possible for any news organisation to guarantee the honesty of this journalism entirely through management rules or through stringent supervision. The reality of investigative journalism, a lot happens in the field, far away from the watchful eyes of the editor. You need teams of journalists who can be trusted to make the right ethical decisions even when they're on, on their own. So, in the light of the News of the World scandal, what might an agenda for the reform of British journalism look like? How could we use some or all of the levers of regulation, legislation, and values and culture to minimise the chance of recurrence of these abuses and of dangerous, improper, or even corrupt relationships between the media, the police? and the political classes. But to do all of that, and this is the the A-level question, to do all of that without impeding or constraining legitimate investigative journalism. Well, we might begin with an attempt to reach a shared understanding of what we mean by the term public interest. There's probably no need for a new definition. Both the BBC's editorial guidelines and the code published by Ofcom contain quite useful language. The important thing is that the industry accepts a common definition so that when we mount a public interest justification, everyone, the courts, the regulators, the public, know exactly what we're all that we're talking about, and that we're all talking about the same thing. I'm not suggesting that journalism, without a clear public interest justification, should be banned, by the way. In a free society, newspapers and others should have the right to publish whatever they want without prior restraint, that they should also face the consequences, legal or otherwise. I'm also someone who's sceptical of the view that newspapers should be regulated in the same way as broadcasters like the BBC who reach into every household in the land. Plurality of uh, of regulation, different, different sorts of regulation alongside each other, is in itself a good thing. One of the safeguards that broadcasters in the UK have is the presence of a far less regulated press which can draw attention to any attempt by the authorities or anyone else to misuse their powers when it comes to broadcasting. To put all journalism, or all media, under a single converged regulator would potentially mean that if ever the state wished to limit media freedom, it would have a single lever with which to do so. Some propose an approach which is statutory, but with guaranteed independence from the state and politicians. Now, this approach is clearly possible in principle. Both the BBC and Channel 4 are public broadcasters with proud and successful histories of constitutional separation from the state. But I doubt that this path would be as practical and as fruitful as effective self-regulation. Now, Chris Mayer will be talking next week about this in more detail, but I I want to say about the PCC and and the current model of self-regulation of the press is that it's not to be dismissed out of hand. It's been copied, the PCC and the whole model has been copied to differing degrees by many other countries because, at least in principle, it offers the prospect of striking the right balance between regulatory redress and press freedom. The PCC's got a good good record in uh, arbitrating complaints and disputes. And the PCC was not established as a regulator as such, and it's not reasonable to criticise it for not doing things it was not designed or empowered to do in the first place. But given what's been revealed over the past few months, to be sustainable in the future, self-regulation would need radical reform. In particular, the self-regulatory body would have to be given the power to conduct unfettered investigations into complaints, and in cases where serious complaints are upheld, to impose fines or other sanctions on guilty parties. It's possible to imagine a system which is essentially self-regulatory, but in which investigations are referred to and carried out by a statutory body, perhaps Ofcom, which could also enforce sanctions. But without investigative powers and without sanctions, self-regulation will not survive. And it's a further unresolved dilemma about how to ensure that the self-regulatory body remains independent of and is not captured by the interests of the most powerful newspapers. One further test for the British press is whether in future it will have the courage to hold itself to account. Many national newspapers, most national newspapers actually, and not just news international titles, showed a remarkable, a very striking lack of interest in the phone hacking story, until it was simply too big to ignore. Indeed, often there were more column inches attacking the BBC for having the temerity to cover the story than there were on the story itself. For newspapers to fail to report on a matter of public interest because it's not in the interest of their industry is a betrayal of journalism and it's exactly the kind of disreputable self-serving behaviour which they routinely accuse other special interests of in the UK. At the BBC we impose a strict barrier between the corporate interest and our news division. We endeavour to cover stories about ourselves with the same rigour and objectivity as we do any other story. Now even if that is too high a bar, a reformed British press would at least ensure, by newspapers re- reporting objectively on each other, that as an industry it began to hold itself to account. All of this might lead you to believe that I think that British journalism, or at least British print journalism, is broken, but that isn't the case. Phone hacking only came to light because brilliant investigative journalism <coughs> by The Guardian. I've already noted outstanding investigations by The Telegraph and other newspapers. I could have talked about The Times and its brave exploration of aspects of the British Army's performance in Afghanistan, or the London Evening Standard's shocking and moving dispossessed campaign. We should acknowledge a continued tradition of brave and outstanding journalism and British newspapers, as well as energy and creativity which bear comparison with anywhere in the world. But there's a fourth threat to investigative journalism in the UK, which is of an overreaction to the abuses of the news of the world. There are many countries where investigative journalism is impossible or restricted to relatively safe areas like consumer rights. But in all countries, there's always going to be some people in authority who, whatever lip service they pay to press freedom, fear the consequences of unfettered investigative journalism. I want to give a recent example affecting the BBC, and it concerns an edition of Panorama last autumn about corruption in football's world governing body, FIFA. In the run-up to last autumn's uh, 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 FIFA vote on where the 2018 and 2022 World Cups will be staged, both Panorama and The Sunday Times published independent investigations into FIFA. But as soon as those who were involved in England's bid to stage the 2018 World Cup heard that a Panorama was in the offing, they began a fairly sustained campaign to persuade us not to broadcast the programme until after the vote had taken place. No one, I'm talking about politicians and many other people in the British establishment, no one who spoke to us, to me or to any of my colleagues, ever suggested that the programme's allegations of corruption were likely to be false. Their point was simply that broadcasting the programme in the run-up to the vote might make it less likely that England would get the World Cup. No need to change the programme. What difference would it make if the BBC took the patriotic path and simply held it back until after the vote had taken place? Now, despite a fair bit of lobbying and public campaigning, we broadcast the edition of Panorama on the planned date. Russia, not England, was selected to host the 2018 World Cup and indeed Qatar in 2022, though the margin of England's defeat was so great and the revelations of FIFA's own subsequent investigation into abuses associated with the vote were so striking that almost no one ended up claiming that Panorama had tipped the balance. Nonetheless, months later, ministers were still saying publicly that our decision, my decision, to broadcast, when we did, had been a, quote, nightmare. The truth is never a nightmare. It's not something that should ever be delayed or curtailed in the interests of political expediency. Now, I can see how frustrating it must be for people who've worked on a sporting bid for years, but that is precisely why it's so important to have an independent press and media Recently, as you may well have read, a so-called production order was served on The Guardian requiring them to disclose the story, the source of the story, that one of the phones hacked by the news of the world and its agents was that of the murdered teenager, Millie Dowler. It was this that had turned the phone hacking into a full-blown crisis for news corporation. So once again, it's, 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 it's a production order based not on the underlying story, but on the, on the people who reveal the story. This production order is part of a wider and, in my view, disturbing trend for police forces in many parts of the UK routinely to demand that journalists disclose sources and hand over journalistic materials. At the BBC, we receive an ever-growing number of demands for untransmitted news which the police seem to regard as having no more privilege or protection attached to them than CCTV pictures. But the Metropolitan Police's production order went further and sought to use the UK's Official Secrets Act normally invoked only in serious matters of national security to impel a Guardian journalist and the newspaper as whole to divulge their source. The Mets claimed that they continued to respect the rights of whistleblowers and the principle of public interest justification for journalism, but quite astonishingly said they thought neither applied in this case. Now, I can think of no better example of a journalistic disclosure being in the public interest than the Millie Dowler story in The Guardian, that anyone in the police should ever have thought otherwise is not only incomprehensible, but disturbing. The Met eventually withdrew the application and said they accepted that the attempt to invoke the Official Act had been wrong, which is good. But again, the fact that anyone in the police should ever have thought it was appropriate in the first place is very troubling. Like politicians, the police often find themselves with a conflict of interest when weighing the independence of the media with their own priorities as they conduct investigations and sometimes that conflict leads to faulty and indeed dangerous actions. This is a dangerous period for British journalism. It will be easy to respond to the completely unacceptable actions of some journalists at the News of the World by adopting such a draconian approach that even the best journalism would be constrained. It will be easy for concern over the appalling invasions of privacy revealed by the phone hacking scandal, to spill over into legislation or regulation which enables wrongdoers to escape journalistic exposure. The Leveson Inquiry and everyone involved in deciding how to respond to the events of the news of the world have an unenviable tightrope to walk. And it won't just be British journalists who watch developments, but editors and reporters all over the world. Some of the issues that I've talked about this afternoon are unique to the UK and the British press, but many of the themes, the boundaries of the public interest, privacy versus the right to disclose, the complex relationship between journalism and those in power, these, I think, are universal themes, and governments and regulators all over the world will be watching very closely to what happens in Britain. I I began with The Hour, a BBC programme, about the origins of investigative journalism and the BBC itself, and I emphasised the the naive idealism of the protagonists um, and their belief in a journalism that can make a positive difference in the world. And I want to end by saying that I think what British journalism means more than anything else, more than any other kind of reform, is a return to that idealism and that belief. Thank you very much.